Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. We're doing a deal summary with Tim Bishops of Bishops Law. Great to have you on, Tim. Great to be on, Will. Thank you for inviting me. Now, we, we've had a previous uh, session with Tim on his, uh, his background, um, and you can look that up on My Property World. But Tim, we're going to be talking about a commercial conversion project that you did yourself, so not, uh, not as a solicitor, but uh, as a developer, builder, slash investor. Um, so what, what was the deal that we're talking about? Where was it? Um, it's uh, Eastgate House in Andover. It's a block of flats, it's currently six flats, which I still own in Andover, which is in Hampshire. So um, when did you buy the property? I bought it back in 2006. Um, at that stage, um, one of my offices, I had an office in Andover, rented, um, and we hadn't really got the space. It was quite expensive. It was an awful office as well, poor quality, etc. So as a result, I thought it would be good to invest in some property. Um, so therefore, I looked around and found this building, which uh, seemed to be perfect. Um, and so therefore, we bought it. Right. And what price did you pay? We paid 300 for it. Now, I can't remember exactly what the asking price was. I do remember it's more than that. I think it was more like 340. I did hear that, that, that it's a block of four. And I think at one stage, I think they may have been on the market for 390. So I think they were obviously on a certain price. At this stage, it was sticking. So I came in with, with a low offer and I got it for 300 grand. And so within the town, where, where does it sit? What, what's yeah, the aspect? What's the... What's Bang in, the, bang in the middle of town, right opposite the central car park. So literally, it's East Street, central car park, big car park is opposite. So it's a block of four. Um, each of the blocks, we've got one of the middle ones, is three stories. Total of about 3,400 square feet over three floors. Modern, built about 20 years ago. So at this stage, it wasn't very old. So, so when you bought it, it was built 20 years ago? No, I, I think it was built just, and I think it's more like 20 years from now. I, honest, I don't remember. It was a few years old, but not over. It was quite a, it was a relatively. Under so 10 years old at that stage anyway. Yeah, yeah. Very good. And what was your objective when you bought it? Well, at that stage, it, it was very simple. We were paying uh, rent on a rather poor uh, office. We needed, we thought at that stage, we we're going to expand the, the uh, this particular branch office. In actual fact, we didn't in the end. We expanded other offices. Um, but yeah, at that stage, it, it was expensive, poor quality. We wanted a bit of space to expand. And I'd worked out by having a look at it that actually the mortgage I'd be paying was about the same as rent. So I was going to get a better uh, building, which was nicer, uh, more, more, more space to expand into and space to rent out. So it was just a, a sensible deal all around if I could get it for a decent price, which I did. Right. So, so the, the, you moved the law firm in 
Um, and, And there was an existing tenant in place. No, it wasn't an existing tenant. It was empty entirely. So what I did at that stage, I reckoned we needed the whole of the ground floor and half the second floor. The second, because of the layout of the building, it was actually quite easy to split each floor into two. There was just a natural space. So we simply put a bit of partitioning across. So therefore we were actually, I think we had the whole of the second floor at this stage, but the top floor certainly was free. And so um, we looked to rent it out. I got in contact with one of the two local commercial agents in town and got him to try to rent it out. But I wasn't impressed with him at all. Um, to be honest, he was he didn't want to drop the price. He just wasn't getting anything at all. So ironically, I, I got it by a rather unusual method. Um, there's a guy I, I knew not well who ran a local radio station and he came to me asking me to or um, the firm rather to do the convincing. Uh, no, tell to, to, to check over the, the lease of some rented property he was going to be uh, uh, rent for his, his new radio station. It was set, He just got a franchise. He had to do it quickly because he had the franchise going to expire. So new radio station. Um, and I looked at it and thought, actually, you know, uh, he's not going to be a terribly good deal here. I could do him a better deal than that. So I simply said to him, you know, yeah, you can do that. But are you interested in this? Uh, and he said, I haven't seen it. Now, the irony is he'd been, it shows how hopeless some agents are. And I'm not generalizing here, but this particular guy is useless. Although this, the, the agent was acting for me, the agent had also given my radio station guy details of the other one. So in other words, he hadn't given the details of my property. So Ian had never seen any details about my property. When he saw it, it was better, better value. So he said, OK, yeah, I'll, I'll rent yours instead. So um, I rented it out directly. Um, that agent never really quite forgave me, I don't think, for that. But he, he was just did a poor and, and job. So there was a contribution towards the, the mortgage? Yeah, uh, I can't remember the details, but I think probably something like um, renting out the top floor was, you know, about 80%. By this stage, interest rates weren't rock bottom as they are now. But I can't remember the interest rates, but they were certainly quite reasonable. Um, four or five percent, I think. Uh, and certainly, uh, yeah, he, the rent paid for the big chunk, most of the mortgage. Well, that, that's great. And at some point, uh, the plan changed. It did, yeah. When I bought it, uh, I bought it for on a 240 grand mortgage. So we put 60 grand in cash uh, and 240 grand mortgage uh, from Barclays. So, yeah, when I went round it initially, uh, it's just what I've always been interested in property. Um, and I went round it and I just remember thinking, actually, yeah, this will make really good flats. I didn't think any more of it. It's just the layout. So the, basically, the, the front, there was a front entrance on the ground floor. And there was a back entrance on the ground floor. Now, the back entrance on the ground floor had uh, a, a set of stairs that went all the way up. And on each floor, it then came to a, a door which split effectively into two, a front and back half. And because of the ways the windows were set out, the windows front and back, three in each, it was there was plenty of reasonable amount of light, perfect positioning. So I said, actually, it'd be quite easy to split this into six flats, knowing nothing about it. Didn't think about it anymore. Um, but then sometime later, I can't remember when, it must have been... Ooh, something like 2015, 2016, I became aware of commercial conversion and in particular um, uh, permitted development, whereby you didn't need planning permission. You needed obviously building regs, etc. But you could potentially uh, you could you didn't have to get planning permission. You could automatically um, convert. And I did some very rough sums and I thought, actually, yeah, this is going to be worth the damn sight more because it hadn't gone up in price much. Um, if I was proved right. The residential market had obviously been flying over that time. Sorry, the. The residential market was flying again oh, at that, that stage. Absolutely. You know, um, in contrast, the commercial property market wasn't. Um, I bought it for 300 grand. We had it revalued in 2017 for a, a, a mortgage change. Um, and that was valued at 330. So, you know, 10% increase in 11, 12 years. 
you know, I don't have the stats, but the increase in residential was far, far, far more than that. So I suddenly thought, actually, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here on something that's that's just not purposed properly. And we hadn't really expanded the office, so we didn't need the extra space. So I suddenly thought, yeah, and why don't we move into rented accommodation just around the corner, which is easy, cheap, um, and then convert this. And so the, the basic strategy is to do the conversion. Uh, what was the plan? The plan was to keep them. I don't think I got any further than that at that stage. Um, it was only subsequently I started becoming uh, directly involved in the property community and started to find out more and more. I think probably it would have happened about the same time. I think I went to my first property networking event around that period. Um, I, I did it purely by accident. I went to a property show um, and one of the big uh, uh, property training organizations were there. They had a branch locally and they had a store. Next door to them was another firm of solicitors. This is in Bournemouth, we come from Salisbury. Um, and amazingly, the lawyers hadn't spoken to, 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 the, to the property guys to, to, who were the networking. So the first thing I said was, do you have a solicitor who comes along? No, they said, having actually this firm next door who paid for a pitch, I got him free. So I said, would you like one? Yes, they said. So I went along to one of them and I became one of the sponsors for a couple hundred quid a year um, and started developing. And as a result, got more involved in property, started going to property courses. And um, so it all happened around about the same time. Mm -hmm. and and so what, what was your uh, targeted revaluation? I didn't have one, <laughs> to be honest. I, I perhaps had a rough idea. Um, I, I can be sometimes a little bit, little bit back, back of the post, although I'm a solicitor, a, a bit rough, rough and ready. I suppose I did some rough calculations. I knew it would be worth a lot more uh, than, than it would do at the moment. I think probably I'd have thought it would be worth eight fifty, nine hundred, something like that. But I can't remember. I, I don't think I went into any details. Uh, if I did it now, I would definitely go through that detail thing. But at this stage, I hadn't done anything. I think it was a little bit, uh, a bit casual, to say the least. Right, it was back of the envelope, but not back of the beer mat. Absolutely, yes, I've got a bit more space on an envelope, absolutely, I wasn't that amateurish. Uh, okay, okay, and, and so um, how uh, how did you find the, the, the people required to uh, actually implement this? Okay, well at this stage, I, I think I started off and, and started to look at things um, and decided I wanted to do it, and then because I involved one of the training companies, they were running a, a mentorship course, a, a commercial property conversion uh, mentorship course, although it was an expensive 12 month course, I signed up for it, it was about 10 grand, but first of all I knew, I, uh, it, was, it was a twin tracking thing, so I knew I'd get the information I needed from there or uh, it would help me significantly with the conversion which I was committed to by that stage, but also I knew it would expose me to a whole load of other investors and developers who probably didn't have a solicitor. So I, I thought I can't really lose on this because even if I don't need the, the training, I'm going to find contacts, I'm going to sell myself, etc. And it proved entirely right. We've had shed loads of clients from it, it introduced me to other people and I got um, a lot of information that I use. So for example, when it came to doing the, the schedule of, of condition for the flats, the, the course had a standard one. I tweaked it very slightly, but it was good. Um, we'd been around the flats, so I'd seen the kind of fittings. I was really happy with those, so I reinvent the wheel. So basically things like the schedule of condition came virtually uh, entirely from the course. Um, I didn't have a project manager at that stage, uh, and this is probably where I started making a mistake. Uh, I did ask one of the guys on the course about one. He said he'd heard of one but couldn't say yay or nay, um, whether he was any good or not, but he had heard about him. Um, so I got in contact with this guy um, and I didn't really do my due diligence. This guy was good. Technically, he was a project manager, fair bit of experience. He's since had, uh, you know, three or four up page article in Is it your property network or property news. So he's quite well known. It's all he did. He clearly knew his stuff. And from that point of view, he was good, but he had a weakness. And again, no names, no pack drill, but he was not strong enough. I think sometimes you can know your stuff, but you can be a little bit weak. He didn't like confrontation. Uh, and I think was a little bit 
cautious of, of, of things as a result of which uh, I made my first big mistake, which was I didn't carry out due diligence on the builder. I let him choose the builder because I thought project managing, I'm paying him a fee, I'll let him get on with it. And that, that was my first mistake um, because the builder was shocking. Simple as that. So yeah, so therefore I, I got him lined up and he, he lined up the builder and he started managing it from there. Um, but there are issues with him later on in the, in the story. Okay, and, and so what, um, you, you had a, a specification. Yep. You uh, employed a project manager. Yep. He's gone and got a, a contractor. Yep. Uh, are there any other professionals involved at this stage? Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, we did all the legal stuff. That was okay. What we did at that stage, we decided we wanted to hold that, it. That's refreshing to hear, by the way. <laughs> absolutely. So, yeah, so we, we, um, we decided... There's a law firm that's one of the, uh, the, the largest, um, I suppose, specialists um, in, in property matters in the country. Uh, certainly, uh, they've got one of the, the bigger leasehold extension teams um, and, and you can look them up at bishopslaw.com. My little shameless plug is a thanks for coming on, Tim. <laughs> Thank you, Will. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I've got, a, I've got, I don't think we had a property investor team at that stage, but we had people who'd done this kind of stuff. So anyway, yeah, so we, we, we dealt with the legals. We actually decided for tax reasons to transfer it from my, because it was my sole name. I bought it in the sole name years before. Uh, we decided we wanted it in a company name. Um, there's no automatic right or wrong within company or, or individual, but for our circumstances, tax-wise, it was best. So therefore, we had technically had the, the property transferred across from my sole name to a company name of uh, <coughs> Uh, my wife and I were the sole directors and, and shareholders. Um, we've been married, we've been together for 37 years, so you know, we're pretty stable. Um, and we also stayed on at that stage. In terms of funding, we stayed on temporarily with Barclays. Now, we'd had the initial 240 grand mortgage with Barclays, and it was a repayment mortgage. So after 11 years, it was gradually coming down, and eventually came down to about 100 grand, so we cleared 140. Uh, I didn't really want to have to re-mortgage at this stage. So what Barclays agreed to do, they agreed simply to transfer the mortgage uh, the commercial mortgage on existing terms from my sole name into the company name, provided it was completed within two years. So they extended it for two years to make it easy. So that was quite good. So there was no uh, re complicated scenario there. It was literally just the transfer across. So I had two years of, of, of the funding there. So that was about, about 100 grand at that stage. We were simply paying that. So therefore, it's in, in our, uh, our joint name. It's not unique, but relatively unusual. Uh, and what, what was the... I can see how uh, you'd got the mortgage level down to a, a point that the the relative risk to the the, the bank was yep. reduced, and uh, obviously there's an ongoing relationship um, yep. uh, at that point. But um, to to take that across into what effectively is a a, a speculative development yep. project, which uh, with a new developer. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I, I, I guess it's about trust. How, how, did, how did that? Um, how did that conversation go with the funder? Relatively easily. I suppose we had the big advantage. They were our business bankers. So they'd known our bank for years. We're still with Barclays. We've been with them quite a few years by this stage. So they, in addition to having the, the loan on that building, they had the business. And obviously that's turning over more money, the assets. And we already had loan with them that we paid for years. And we since remortgaged with them and increased loans and then paid it back. So yes, yeah, so, so we, it was very much a track record for someone they knew. 
Um, at that stage, I had a personal bank manager who we'd had for years, so he knew me, trusted me, and looked at the rough figures we produced and didn't seem to have a problem with it, because ultimately it was a hundred grand loan on a building that's worth at least 330 at that stage. Um, the, the, the mortgage, as I said, was pretty low. Um, you know, we could easily pay it from, from, the, from the business, so he didn't seem to have a problem. Perhaps with hindsight, we were quite lucky to get it, because I know sometimes lenders can be tight, but at the time it seemed common sense to me, and they went along with it. So the conversation was very easy, I guess, because of my relationship with the bank, you know. So perhaps other people wouldn't have got that so easily. Sometimes I know lenders can be very pedantic. Certainly, uh, the, the asking the right person about it. Yeah, absolutely. And and the fact that we knew them, it's trust, long-term relationships, you know, and the and, and comparatively compared with other loans and, and the value of the business, it was relatively small, small, small stuff for them, I guess. And and what was the level of workload through the job for you? Um, I didn't want to become a full-time investor. Uh, or sorry, a full-time developer. So the plan was at that stage to um, to, to do it very, uh, hand, I suppose, more or less hands off. I'd had experience of this, I suppose, and I can't remember the exact timing. I think it, I think it would have started around about the same period or possibly slightly before I did an HMO. But with the HMO, to be honest, I had a guy, uh, two guys who worked together. They sourced it, that they produced the plans, they project managed it, and then they let it out. So my involvement was pretty slim, apart from actually agreeing to buy the particular house, putting up the money, etc., going and having a look at it occasionally and, and, and saying yes to bills. So I suppose that was, I think I pretty started that. I can't remember the timescale where that was. So I'd done that and I thought, kind of want to do something similar. See, we can do fairly hands off. I'm happy to pay for the resource. You know, I wasn't paying a fortune. I was paying a decent price to the project manager. And my view, actually, he'll sort it. Any major problems come back to me. Obviously, we need to agree to certain things, certain stuff I got from the course, like the schedule of condition I, I provided to him. So that was the kind of the initial plan, but it didn't quite work out that way. Right. And on reflection, what, what would you have done differently on the assumption that you'd gone with the same guy? Due diligence on the builder. That, that, that was, I think, the, the first big mistake. Um, we trusted him to choose a builder. Um, and he clearly didn't do due diligence. It was somewhere, I think, in, even in the same building. I think with hindsight, it was unbelievably lazy, and I was very casual because I trusted him. I suppose having gone through that with someone before around that period, when, when they, the project manager picked the builder and it was dead easy, he managed everything step, good builder. I suppose I expected this guy to do the same, given that he was, that's all he did all day. But unfortunately, he didn't. He picked a shocker. Um, and if I'd done due diligence, and I'm now very keen on due diligence, we'd have spotted a whole load of things that wouldn't have touched him with a barge pole. In fact, partly pushed by that, we've actually produced uh, our own free checklist, which is a joint venture due diligence checklist, because everybody always talks about due diligence. Do due diligence on, on your joint venture partner. But when they talk about detail, they, they're vague. You know, check them out. It's all vague stuff. So we've got a, we've worked with a bank and um, accountant and various other property professionals for a great uh, long list. Can download that on your website. Yep, or? they certainly can. Yep, yep, absolutely. It's, we have a joint venture page and it's on there, or you can email me directly. It's it's simply downloadable. Put your details in uh, and, and download the free. It is. Yes, it is. Yep. Okay, so what uh, what were some of the other issues with with um, so uh, just as a quick overview, yes. you. you uh, a project like this, um, typically you're, you're aiming to be in and out in 12 months. Uh, <laughs> what was your, your target at, at the beginning? And it pretty well so. I think it took us a while to get started. But yeah, certainly once we got the builder on board, we had a clear plan. Um, and I think probably once the, I think the build was something like six months or so, six, seven months, something like that, I think. So there was the day before. Uh, and because I think I was working the day job, it had all gone slower by the time we'd actually uh, done things. But the four mistakes I made. So um, number one, it was spending too much time on the day job and, and not, uh, not pushing it forward. And it went slowly. 
Uh, I, I joked at the time that it was my attempt to get into the Guinness Book of Records as the slowest ever commercial conversion. It wasn't quick. When I was involved on the commercial conversion course for a year, you know, most of them had, had, hadn't even started a project. They'd started one, almost finished it by the time I'd, I'd, uh, we'd finished the 12-month course. I was already talking about it in advance. Still hadn't finished it by the time we, we, we came through. So it was a bit embarrassing, but I can cope with that. So number one, that was, that was the first mistake. Second one was due diligence. As I said, if we checked, we'd have seen this guy had a history of failed companies. Um, so it would be a pretty basic check, and it's one of the things we recommend. L look at the companies, uh, their, their company records, etc., to see what the history was, because he had a series of companies he built up and, and then sacked. So we should have checked that, but frankly, so should the, the you know the, the guy who chose him, and he didn't. So we had very poor um, contractor. Uh, when I say contractor, he was supposed to be a builder. It was built into the JCT, the, the contract, that he wouldn't use subbies, and he did. Um, so that was an immediate breach, but we didn't realise that for a while. Um, so having him was a mistake. Should have done my due diligence. One thing we got right, however, um, was, was in the joint the JCT contract, there is an opportunity for a penalty clause if there's a delay. Now, we're not specialists on this. I actually know a solicitor who does specialise in that, and we pass work to him if it's, if it's about this. But at that stage, I'd let the, um, the project manager do it. It wasn't a big build, so he was happy to do that and pass it over to us for approval. We'd noticed he put in zip on the penalty clause. So we thought, that's daft, you know, wh wh why, why not? So we put in 1,500 quid a week, uh, and the builder signed it. And that saved our bacon at the end of the day because he was so far behind. Uh, he was about four or five months behind at one stage. So I think we saved 25, 30 grand. We clawed back and eventually he simply walked out um, because he was he was in all sorts of things. He had the subbies he wasn't supposed to be using. He was taking our money, telling the subbies that, that I hadn't paid him and that he wasn't paying them. So he was very much using Peter to pay Paul. And unsurprisingly, I think that company went into liquidation. So it was an absolute mess. So we should have spotted that. So that was one thing we, at least the JCT contract was important, the penalty clause, he kind of walked away because we, we were clawing stuff back for him on, on, a, on a huge basis. Next mistake I made was not getting involved enough with the actual build. I think I'd had the experience with the HMO where they converted a three bed to an eight bed, converted a cellar, um, and I'd spent very little time there because I trusted the guy and they did a cracking job, no problem at all. And I suppose, I'd lazily, I'd assume the same would happen, but it wasn't. Uh, the project manager was too weak uh, and he couldn't cope with the, um, with, with the dodgy builder because the builder was just dodgy. And I think it, it occurred to me why I, you needed to get more involved. Uh, one, one trip I went around, and I always remember what I noticed. And at that occasion, the, the lesson I've learned, it's, it's your money. However good somebody else is, however good your power team is, it's not their money at stake, it's yours. I went around the building, and included in the building costs were the replacement of two windows. Now, these were big windows, tall, not quite floor to ceiling, but virtually floor to ceiling windows, quite wide. And both of them, um, according to the build spec, needed replacing at two and a half grand each. So not insubstantial. You know, given the value of the building, five grand on a 300 grand building is substantial. And so I remember going around the building with them and looking at various things. And I pointed to the windows. And one of them, I said, is that the window we're talking about that's going to be replaced for two and a half grand? Oh, yes, said the project manager and the builder. So I pointed to it and said, oh, look, the sill's completely rotten, isn't it? Oh, yes, they said, has to be replaced. But the actual window itself is quite sound. Oh, yes, they said. So why can't we just replace the sill? Well, we could do, they said. I couldn't, the conversation was as simple as that. And the fact the project manager hadn't challenged, it was, it was sitting in front of you, had simply let it go because the builder had said, so five grand, they replaced it for two or 300 quid, I think. So I'd, I'd say the best part of five grand just by spotting something. And that was an iron for me. I trusted these guys. I assumed they had my best interest at heart and they'd work hard. 
the, the builder was clearly dodgy as hell and he was trying to rip me off and the project manager just couldn't be bothered or, or just wasn't careful enough and it was it was such an obvious one so i learned a big lesson there um, it's your money that's yeah that's, that's my next big lesson and I think um, I think that's a, a an enormous point. Like people who aren't willing to do the work to go around and li literally look at every wall. Yeah. Uh, talk about what's going on. Talk about what what they want to happen. Yeah. Uh, if you don't do that work, you get things exactly like like the windowsill. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, subsequently I did get more involved. There were some issues, building regs issues with fire doors and stuff, and I got involved. And I think we eventually came up with, with sensible solutions. But, yeah, I started to get more involved in that stage. Uh, you know, I suddenly thought, no, actually, it, it, being hands-off in this way sounds great, but actually it's lazy and it's risky. Um, you know, okay, I don't have to be the builder or the project manager, but I've got to keep an eye on it because they won't. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. And, and so how long did this job end up taking from... Um, from from concept to uh, there's people moving in. <laughs> hmm. I, to be honest, I have to check the exact dates. I reckon it's the best part of about three years. Um, you know, it was slow. You know, because once the builder had gone, then they suddenly... built the Empire State Building in 1931 in 13 months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, I think they probably you had, a, you had an existing building. You, you just needed to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I tell you, I made a mistake. I'm being honest about this one. Um, I, 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 the problem was, number one, the, the loan was, certainly the bank loan was very small. You know, it wasn't a major issue, the money going out. So we didn't have expensive bridging. We did have to borrow some money, some family money, um, which I'll come back to in a minute. But yeah, it's a bit embarrassing. There was another delay because once we'd actually, the builder, we'd sacked the builder at this stage. That apart from one letter from a solicitor, which we, we responded to, we never heard from him again. Um, he just, he's vanished. And I think probably, you know, went into liquidation and just went on to rip somebody else off. But we had quite a regular contact from the subbies who were very upset. But we were honest with them. We gave them the contact details. We gave them any, you know, we said, if you want to sue him, we'll support you and do whatever you do. He's ripped you off. But uh, we're pretty sure at one stage, some pipe work that had been put in was ripped out. And we're pretty sure they came in and basically, because they hadn't been paid, they took the pipe work back. So that was an additional cost we'd had to claw back. But we didn't end up paying anywhere near what we should have done for the building. So therefore, we had to get somebody else to sort it out. And at this stage, the project manager had got really weak because he couldn't cope with the, con uh, the conflict, had done a dodgy job. And basically, he kind of vanished as well. We hardly heard from him. So I got on the guy who'd done my HMO just to kind of finish things off. So he got some subbies in to finish things off. He sorted things out himself um, and he did most of it. But again, then he went AWOL. He decided he, he wanted to go back to a full time job. So he dropped out. Um, and then I got a third person who's now managing the building for me, ex-Marine, to come in just to sort things out, finalise things, get everything lined up. So there were delays with the wrong people. Uh, the good news is we could afford to do it. The bad news, clearly, we were borrowing a bit of money and it cost us a bit more, but uh, it ended up a really good project. And, and so what, what's it rented for at the moment? Okay, well, the figures I've got here, let's have a look. So uh, we, we started with the purchase price of 300 grand plus VAT, which we then recovered. We then had to transfer it from the, um, the, the sole, my, my sole name to the company name, I think at a value of 330. We reckon we spent and the refurb costs including uh, fitting out professional fees and interest, we reckon was about 330. It would have been higher, I think, if we hadn't been able to claw all that stuff back. So that delay, although we had a delay, we probably made more money on the delay because we clawed back 30 old grand from, from the contractor. So 330 was a pretty good um, uh, conversion cost, I think. So therefore, as you can see, it's either 3630 or 660, depending on whether you want to take the 300 grand price or the 330 price. Um, it's now worth, we reckon, I haven't got a, a proper valuation, we're in the process of remortgaging, but certainly my broker had a quick look at it and he reckons it's worth about a million. Um, it's six flats. 
selling. I valued it a few years ago, uh, about 2018, 925, 950 minimum. So it's, it's somewhere around that. So, so, uh, so about a 50% uplift or, or, or profit yeah, on cost. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the higher figure. So, yeah. So it's been really good. So, so, so we're in the eye as they say well, exactly so although I'm, I'm i'm missing all these mistakes overall it's been good you know not for the first time in my life you know made mistakes but but never given up carried on carried on pushing you know it's a problem don't you know don't get embarrassed by it just get it sorted own up to your mistakes accept your mistakes don't make them twice and and, and get it finished uh, and what what are the the flats uh, being used for well, there's six flats. Um, we, it, the size of the building, if it had been on one floor, we probably could have got seven. Um, but because it's on three floors, you, you, you couldn't. So we've got six You've flats. Got steel wheels and things, and yeah. Yeah, we've got, we've got six flats, um, which are four one bedrooms and two two bedrooms. Um, it ranges from the smallest. It's quite small. It's actually uh, I know there are issues um, with uh, were at the time with with borrowing. You had to have a minimum of thirty square meters a flat. This is thirty point seven square meters. But equally, some of the two bedroom flats are about 60 square metres. So there's quite a big difference. So at the moment, the two ground floor flats always have been let out as ASTs. They're not a huge sum, but they tick over quite nicely. I think one person has been in there for three years. I think the other one has had two tenants. Ticks over nicely. Very simple. Good value. Particularly the small one is cheap. Um, you know, and, and uh, you don't get anything. You know, it, it's nice, modern, small, but cheap. Um, but the other four, we decided to try with serviced accommodation. Um, so that's what we've done. Um, the guy who, who ended up saving my bacon and finishing the project off the Marine, he's got his own property, but he also manages service accommodation for other people locally and nationwide. Uh, and he's, I think he speaks, does some mastermind things. So he knows what he's doing and being an ex Marine, he gets things sorted. So unlike the flaky guys I've had in the past who just didn't finish things off and walked away, this guy is, is excellent. He's a Marine. You ask him to do something. You don't have to ask twice. He gets it done. And, and you know, he only comes to you if he needs you. He just gets it sorted. So it's fantastic. So it is, it, it's become what I'd hoped, virtually hands off. So those four are rented so, out so the service. A, a steady income coming in from, from two of them and then uh, a variable, but presumably yeah. a, a premium rentals on the... Exactly. Yeah. And um, it's interesting that um, most until recently, the most most of the serviced was actually contractors. There was a particular project locally that had a lot of contractors um, and uh, the way we'd set it up suited them. So, for example, the, the bedrooms always have double link beds. So if, if you want to put two people in there and the sofa even had, uh, I think, a sofa bed. So, you know, you could get four or five people in if they wanted to, provided they, they pay the right price. So until recently, it's been many contractors, which have been great because you haven't got Airbnb fees, etc. More recently, the contracting that particular job has finished, and as a result, it's been far more residential. So it's been called Airbnb and Booking.com, that kind of stuff. But we've also had some medium-term bookings of a couple of months or so, and they're quite nice. I think there's there's no vatable over a certain period. Plus, there's no Airbnb charge necessarily. Um, and these are people who sometimes are between jobs or coming down for a longer period or between houses. So that's been quite nice. So I can tell you, in, in 2021, the income before VAT and company tax, but after expenses, was 73 grand 487. Right. So, so therefore, that, you know, that's obviously that's, uh, you know, 7.3%, which is, you know, com compared with the Abitalet, it's quite good. Um, at the moment, as, as I speak at the moment, we have no uh, I, I have to say what's going through my mind. Um, yep. If you've done it two years faster, that was 150,000. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. I'm a great believer in or, not or looking... I'm just shy, sorry. That's not, not, no, uh, no, no. not quite right. But... <laughs> I, I, I'm famous. I'm a naive optimist. Uh, you know, you ask, you know, it's a glass half empty, half full. It's always half full. What's interesting psychologically is apparently 
people who have this naive optimism generally are more successful, but it can be arguably classified as a mental illness because you don't see the world as it really is. But the advantage is if you're going over, over a tightrope over Niagara Falls, for example, the chances are you're going to fall to your death. And so most people think of that and fall. Idiots like me think, oh, I'm going to be absolutely fine and plow on ahead. And as a result, I'm more likely to get to the other side. The other side. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I'm an eye optimist. Yeah, I, I, I can look back. I always look forward. I, I don't regret the past. Or what's done is done. You know, I, but I learn from my lessons. Yeah, and then and the project I'm doing at the moment. You know, oh, literally, you know, it's been done like that. So someone needs to get back to something. We're doing it, uh, and we'll be much better. So I've learned my lesson. So um, I'm, I, I, I make mistakes, but I don't do them twice. Right, and and you're uh, you're not put off by the uh, the, the episode. You're, you're going again, I believe. Yeah, no, I, I, I learned lessons. You know, it's, uh, business is never easy. I think some people wander into business, oh, there are going to be no challenges. There are always challenges in business. Every day I could bore you for hours with all the challenges of my law firm. It's a highly successful law firm, but there are loads of issues. Um, you know, COVID is just one of them. Um, but you, you, people who succeed in business. Tim, uh, day job runs a 65-person law firm, um, which is, uh, we'll, we'll come to at the end, but... Yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of time, but equally, I'm, I'm now I've learned my lesson, and I'm I'm now trying to, I suppose, fix certain times to do property stuff, either getting stuff done immediately, um, or um, or prioritising it, um, because it's it, it needs to be done urgently, and and that's my error in the past. But as I said, despite my errors, um, and anybody who's listened to the one about my my history, you'll hear the mistakes I made leaving law, etc. You know, I, I made plenty of mistakes, but I think everyone does. Perhaps I'm a bit unusual because I admit them all, um, but I learn from them. And um, I'm a great believer in it, it. It's that you have to carry on. People who succeed in business don't give up the first hurdle. Uh, you know, every time they get knocked back, they get up and they go around and, and find a way around that hurdle. And that's what I do. So, yeah, um, I'm successful. You know, somebody described me as an overnight success after 25 years. You know, I made the mistakes, but I don't make them twice. Yeah, and I, th I think uh, Tim's definitely got an interesting profile. Um, I, I'd recommend you look up in the back episodes um, his My Property World profile interview. Uh, he goes into his early days as a music lawyer, uh, dealing with Boy George and uh, various other superstars. I'm not sure if we're, we're supposed to mention that, but um, um, in terms of... Um, the property deal, uh, well done. You, you've, you've bought something for a, a 60 grand deposit. Uh, it's now got a roughly million pound valuation. Uh, you've got an ongoing, uh, you know, plus 7% uh, net yield before finance, which is uh, is very good. Um, so, so well done. Um, I, I, I'd encourage you to keep going. And if you get an opportunity to, to look uh, Tim up online, um, you can go to his LinkedIn profile or indeed contact them through bishopslaw.com. Tim Bishop, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you, Will. I'm Will Mallard. This is My Property World. Thank you. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun so plug in your headphones and enjoy. 
We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property Well profile.